Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown in the studio, but Robin, but welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Graham. It seems quite strange because I've seen you more or less every day for the last few months because we are in the same office space. Finally, we're you're here. We're neighbors and I finally made them to you. Exactly. Room. We did. I mean, we've had a few interesting discussions. We found out that we both share a love of triathlon. Ironman in particular. I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about it. We can't not talk about that in this opportunity to go into your life, right? It is who we are. Because exactly, it's a big part of what you do, isn't it? And you've, um, so, okay, let's start there. Before we go into budding innovations, I have to explain to people, especially friends and family, why the hell anybody would choose to do an Ironman. What's the answer? Help me out here. Well, they do say anything's possible, right? So Ironman is, is not a one off event it's a journey yeah um and i remember for me it started being not even close when did you start i started 2015 right okay. at a point three years ago yeah. yeah at a point i would still get panic attacks if my face would go underwater in open water so i, I couldn't properly swim i could swim in a pool i can play i can do everything that but finishing a swim like in an ironman that was an absolute nightmare um so for me it was a constant battle for just making improvements um, and if you have one of these BHAG goals, big, hairy, fat, audacious yeah. goals, then that for me as a personality is what makes it interesting. Mm. If I make very small incremental improvements, um, it doesn't give you much of a positive buzz coming out of it. So if you want to go and convince somebody else about doing an Ironman, it's not about just the swimming, the biking, and the running. Yeah, It's about getting your life up and running making sure that if it's not just a physical barrier at sport but if it's a barrier you face at work in life in your family that making small interventions eventually get you to a point that what originally looked like an unsurmountable barrier all of a sudden mm. becomes very palatable um, and that's what iron man kind of shows you that small obstacles and you keep on adding more and more obstacles all of a sudden it's not an obstacle anymore it's a lifestyle and everything just gets better because of it yeah can totally agree that whole part of completing your first time man let's just talk about that because i think there are i mean a lot of parallels are made between sport and entrepreneurship and there's certain lessons we can bring in that i want to sort of talk about what it was like when you completed your first one tell us where did you do it mm -hmm. well in a way i'm glad that you mentioned because I, I do talk to entrepreneurs when they ask me, oh, what does it take to be a successful startup? Mm -hmm. And what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? I started to talk about it in a way that people find it very difficult to relate to something they don't know. Right? Like it, it's hard to say what it is to be an entrepreneur because most of these people haven't been an entrepreneur. But when I ask them a question, will you do an Ironman? And they're like, well, hell no. But why not? Oh, it's too far and it's too hard and it's too this and it's too that. And it's like... It's the same thing about becoming an entrepreneur. It, mm. It's a journey where there are many different challenges, obstacles, character traits, and skills that you need to get. Um, and w we can talk about this for the longest time, but Ironman in particular, based on the heart that you need to have, the mm. mental endurance, the multidisciplinary skills that you need to get, it's not just one particular thing. There are a lot of parallels between startups and doing Ironman yeah. racing, which in principle are very nicely overlapping. So what I experienced for the past two or three years is that my my entrepreneurial journey and my Ironman journey actually kind of started at the same time. And what I saw is that the parallels between becoming an entrepreneurial um, lifestyle, the upsides, the euphoria, the energy boosts, but at the same time, the pain, the short nights, the suffering. The suffering. Suffering is the <laughs> word, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and in a way, suffering becomes glory, and the suffering yeah. you forget as soon as the baby's delivered. Um, but that entrepreneurial and Ironman journey had so many parallels mm. that for me, um, it, it, it goes hand in hand now. Mm. Um, and if you can become an entrepreneurial thing, that almost is a equivalent of an Ironman race in, in real life, not sports-related. Yeah. So. yeah, so when you started, you were 41, 40, 41, and you yeah. started doing Ironman and you started a business yeah. as, a, as an entrepreneur, your own business at the same time. Exactly, yeah. Okay. You, your life before that, you were quite comfortable. You had a successful corporate career. Well, corporate life was stressful in a way because I was doing quite a bit of global assignments. Yeah. Um, so I was, was busy in a different kind of way. If you become entrepreneurial, 
in the way the support system drops, right? Because you don't have a corporate structure to yeah. take care of you. Uh, they just give you a lot of work, but then within those frameworks, you, you still uh, keep moving forward. Um, but then when you do Ironman and um, entrepreneurial life, on both sides, there's not really a, a support structure because Ironman is a very individual race. Mm. Even though, yes, the family is supporting you and you've got your trainers and you've got your community, but the effort is still very individual. Yeah. Whereas when you become an entrepreneur, um, the way BI started was still me translating my life's experience into a business model. Um, there was also a bit of an individual initial journey. I had the best possible co-founder with Andre that, that, was, that was there, that was my support system. Mm. Um, but still, being an entrepreneur, in the absence of that framework before you build it, that is an individual journey as well. So Yeah, and it could be quite lonely, isn't it? I mean, even doing an Ironman race, going back to that analogy, when you do the race, especially when you do the bike segment, because that's the part where you really can feel like you go through the dark moments, can't you? Because often it's five, six hours, or if you're doing a half, it's maybe three hours, and you're you're doing that on your own. You're not allowed to be within five meters of the guy in front or behind. Yeah. Or you, you can't talk to people. You can on the run, on the swim. You're not bothered because you're just trying to stay alive, right? You want to swim. You're trying not to get hit in the first place. Yeah, like kicked in the face. It's, it's pretty aggressive. On the bike, you really feel that, don't you? You're on your own. You're out there, and oftentimes your mood drops, and you can feel. Well, actually, the, the the lonely part is is at a different point. The lonely part is the same lonely part as when you're doing your entrepreneurial journey. Mm. It's when it's dark outside, when you're at home, when you're doing your work, when you're figuring things out. So for me, the lonely part is all the early morning training sessions. When you're up, you're sweating your off and Sweating your ass off. Say it as it is. Can, can, I, can I say yeah, ass? <laughs> well, what time are you getting up to do that? Uh, nowadays, simply because I'm doing both. Ironman journey, entrepreneurial life, I need to find hours in a day. So yeah. I get up between 4 and 4.30 a.m. in the morning. I do my initial sessions before the sun even comes up. Um, then I have my breakfast and I start the rest of my day. And I um, try to finish at the time and I can do a second session in the evenings. That's when you get on the training bike, right? You're not going out and cycling around, you know, glorious sun, you know, sunrises. You're, you're in a room with a towel on a training bike just grinding it out, right? Exactly. Well, we, we do enjoy the, the group rides on yeah. the weekend. So whenever I have a chance, I'll, I'll go. Um, I, I do need to work around my work schedule. So I, I can't work around training and then match my business schedule. Mm -hmm. that, so, and that makes it sometimes difficult to make it a, a group activity because I'm, I'll never be there. Um, but most of the time it's under controlled conditions at home on rollers, which actually makes it much more consistent. And the training efficiency mm -hmm. and the output you get, I think, is better than trying to run or cyc cycle on the roads in Singapore because yeah, too many traffic stops, too many traffic lights. There are no long stretches where you can just keep your mm. heartbeat or cycle between your heartbeats in controlled conditions. So for me, very specific training programs are much easier to control on a roller at home um, than what I would be able to do recreationally outside. W what has it taught you as an entrepreneur? Do, do you think that the fact that you're an entrepreneur and an Ironman and a successful one as well, I mean, you're all-world age group athlete. I don't know how sort of that sort of compares to the average Ironman, but you're in the top X percent, right? Um, in, in absolute timings per race, I'm, I'm not that impressive, right? I'm somewhere in the middle. But my persistent effort last year right. by doing five races quite well got me to top 10% overall. So they got me right. to the AWA ranking the bronze Well, there's a lesson level. in that, isn't that? That you've, yeah. you've specifically targeted races to exactly. get your your ranking right exactly and part of what i tried to prove last year also is it was a bit of a crazy idea i, I did three races in 36 days um did two half ironmans and then korea full ironman in a period of 36 days right and these weren't in the same country N no one was philippines then we had indonesia bintan and then Korean korea so right. it was the travel on top of but then the combination between training and recovering and getting back for the next race and just trying not to kill yourself is well, was a challenge right the beautiful thing, though, and, and that's where, again, Ironman racing gives me so much energy and courage to keep on going for entrepreneurial life because obstacles are temporary. Mm. Um, if you just, in a very deliberate way, keep on hammering away at it, and if you have your strategy, if you know where to focus, if you learn from your mistakes, you just train harder, get new skills to do something better, and really put your effort where a difference uh, is happening, um, you'll get there. Yeah, and and you look yeah. back and you say like, wow, wow, what the hell? This this is really amazing. Um, so for me, doing Ironman for the first year it, with another um, 
trivia from startup life is my first Ironman was a complete fuck up. Um, Where did I you do it? I went to France. Oh, went, that's quite hard. Went, was it in Marseille? I went to Nice. Oh, nice. nice. Okay, that's the, that's the hard one. The it was a hard one. Yeah. But I didn't make it to the swim. No, I didn't, didn't make I it to in the swim. Well, actually not making through the swim probably saved me from even worse from cycling in right. the Alps because look, looking back, I was not ready. Right. Knowing what I know now, I was a silly idea to even start. I was so not ready. Uh, but my swim was still very inexperienced, wild seas, this and that, yeah. still not doing freestyle. Um, and, and what happened literally is like I went to backstroke to recover a bit. I was already drinking too much water in right. the first two kilometers. And when you know mass swim starts, is you get hit. It's right? crazy. But when you're doing freestyle, your face is in the water. So if you get hit, it's on your butt, your back, uh, yeah. and the back of your head. If you're in backstroke, you get hit straight in the face which is what happened. My goggles break was two kilometers out and I had to kind of put my hands up. It was, was wow, it was a good lesson. Good experience was, though in was the grand scheme. It was embarrassing because you're not yeah. prepared, but th the learning is, is it's the same with startups. My, my first startup project that I started was also a failure. Right. Um, all in all, a lot of the preparation was good, but there were a couple of killer issues in the program and I, I didn't know in, in the first time we did this. Yeah. Um, but you just regroup, you don't give up, you, you really analyze where do we go off track and next time you just try something different and you keep on improving. So my second Ironman was a half distance Ironman, um, was in Malaysia, Putrajaya. Um, I finished it, it was slow. I still remember the first time I got out of the water was like, that is where I won the race for myself. Yeah, yeah. Just I'm, making I'm, it I'm through alive. This I didn't like, drown. Oh my goodness, the rest I can run, <laughs> crawl, whatever. I'll, I'll make it on hands and feet. Um, but that was victory. Progress. Already, so exactly. Um, so it was really good. And the other thing with entrepreneurial life and startup life, of Ironman life and um, entrepreneur, is Ironman is actually one of the very few sports where you're on the same track with your heroes. Mm, you're, sh you're sharing the track with your heroes. And they'll pass you and mm. if you have a chance they'll, they'll clap your hand or, or this mm. but you're on the same track with them um, which is the same with entrepreneurship you share the same space sometimes with people yeah um, and that's what also makes Ironman so unique and these people are very accessible and it's just really great to learn from them absolutely can't disagree in any way so l let's talk about startups and you know let, let's we'll, we'll come around to budding innovations and talk about that you shared your pitch deck with us so we'll have a look mm -hmm. at that the what I wanted to share was the two lessons that I've learned from Iron Man in terms of being a startup entrepreneur is the first one, and I really learned this from Iron Man, is that you've got to surround yourself with good people because I was a lousy cyclist. Mm -hmm. And to solve the problem, I looked around and thought, where can I go and hang out with really good cyclists and become a good cyclist? Mm -hmm. I moved to Lanzarote in Spain where they've got the, the training center and they have the, the steep climbs, tough, tough climbs. I moved the family there and said, right, I'm going to live here and live with pros effectively or semi-pros. A lot of elite cyclists, a lot of elite European cyclists go to Lanzarote and just hang out with them. Mm -hmm. Because if I hang out with them, I'm going to get better. You know, I'm not going to want to be the guy who's getting dropped on every climb because eventually that's going to eat me up and I'm going to get better and better and better. That's going to give me the, the hunger to get better. So mm -hmm. I did that. And the second thing is I think I've learned, even at my late stage of my life, you know, being a bit older, you know, I sh I'm still learning in my 40s, is that you've got to be in it for the long term. It's a long game. Be patient. And Ironman was all about whether it's in the race or your training, patience, patient, patient, patient. Just plug away slowly, 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 and you'll get there. You'll get the results. Those are two things that I really took mm -hmm. away from it. Uh, absolutely. And to the last part, the, the pacing, yes. And pacing still means making progress. Right? This is not about stopping and thinking about things. It's you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other one, um, which is the same in normal entrepreneurial life. Yeah. You have to shoot for progress. And you need to keep hitting for the same goal, no matter how you get there. Unfortunately, I, I didn't move to Lanzarote. I, I came to Singapore. Um, but there is a, a really great Ironman community. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm part of a group called Tricators. Um, I think by now it's a group of 64, headed by a young, very energetic lady called Jamie, Jamie Goal. Uh, she's inspirational. She's done, I think, at least 10 ultra marathons, wow. so many normal marathons. She's done 13 full distance Ironmans now. Uh, she's completed the Ultraman in Australia. And she's just the epitome that of... That Ultraman is pretty damn it's hardcore. It's brutal. Especially in Australia where they're pretty yeah. damn hardcore Absolutely. anyway, right? She did it a few months ago and it's, well, she's the epitome of 
endurance. Well, what, what's it like to hang out with people like that? How does that affect you? They give me inspiration and they, they show me that normal people with their lifestyle yeah. can do really amazing things. So Jamie is, is leading the group and she built a community of people that are very unique um, in a sense. You've got people like, like Jonathan, you've got um, other very, very inspirational people and mm. some of them are AWA golds. They're really podium people. They're super strong athletes, but they're normal people yeah. like, like you and me. And they're, they're so open, they're so accessible, they give you tips, they give you kicks in the butt, they give you advice. And for me, Ironman training is not necessarily to always run with someone. It's not always about somebody giving you a training schedule, but it's also about people giving you inspiration. Yeah. And people showing you that it's possible, yeah. giving their own challenges in their life, because none of these guys are having an easy life. No. Everybody's having their own family context, their work challenges, their, their own issues. And still, they can push themselves so hard that that in itself becomes inspirational. Yeah. So going through the travels with them, and when, when we do our group, uh, Korea last year was was amazing. We had like a whole busload of tricaters that went in a group organized trip to to do the full distance there, mm. and just being surrounded by these guys is just is just amazing. That um, becomes normal for you, then, doesn't it? That becomes e even though you know we all talk about being motivated. When you hang around with people who are talking in these terms, like yeah, I'm going to Korea to compete. Or, you know, I put in a, a 4.30 training session, did mm -hmm. two hours on the bike, or, you know, I've done 13 ultra marathons or whatever it is. When you hang around with those people, that then becomes your sort of base level, doesn't it? That You absorb yeah. that. And, uh, you, you know, the opposite can be the case as well, isn't it? The people say, oh, you know, I, I'm just going to go out drinking tonight. Or whatever. That's the thing. Your, your social circle, your surroundings, the people you surround yourself with, they will either keep you back or they will pull yeah. you forward. And with social media, it, it's actually sometimes quite obvious. When, when I open my Facebook, I see people out for runs. I see people out for races. I see people right, watching yeah, their yeah. diet. I see people doing this. <laughs> on the other side, I've got people doing all the innovation stuff and all yeah. that cool stuff. Um, my WhatsApp is the same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm literally get pinged with people that are getting up at four or five in the morning yeah, for, for rides. And that in itself kind of, when I'm having a bad moment, when I feel kind of like, oh, fuck, I just want to sit at home and, and just whatever, eat an ice cream and watch watch CSI. And we're like, oh, well, everybody else exactly. is up for a I can, I, can, like, I have to keep on going, otherwise next time it's going to be painful for me. So that gives you that extra it's boost. Great like. motivation. Well, cool. I mean, let, let's turn that over to Budding Innovations now. If we could just flip up the pitch deck and have a look at that. So talk a little bit about what Budding Innovations is all about. What, what What's the problem that you're solving first? Mm -hmm. Well, let me talk about the frustration first, mm. because Buddy Innovations was created to address an original frustration I had. Mm. And this was rooted in my past corporate life. During um, my post-corporate life for about 15 years in Procter & Gamble and Avery Dennison, I've always been R&D. I've always been trying to fix needs amongst the consumer base and develop new innovative products, being a disruptive innovation, incremental innovation, whatever it was. Um, and I was blessed to be in a function that was called products research in the days, where I literally would spend 50 to 60% of my time in a consumer's home, being it in Latin America, being it in Africa, being it in the Middle East, being in mm. Southeast Asia. I've been, I've been everywhere. Um, and literally talking to real people, listening to their real lives, and trying to figure out how can I make that just a little bit better, understanding what that solution could potentially look like, and then work back with the R&D teams and the business teams and bringing that to life. So, so what would that be an example? Like talking to a housewife about what? Well, categories I've worked in, for example, was, was healthcare, mm. right? How do you create new supplementation products for children in China when mm. you want to make sure that in certain age groups they get better vitamins, better supplements, and how you do that? Um, we would go in Egypt, for example, for women delivering a better um, image for their husbands when they were, for example, washing simple things like white clothes. Mm -hmm. But these people don't have the cash reserves to keep on buying new clothes. So you recycle white stuff, but it gets yellow and dingy and dirty. And if, if you go to work and you wear dingy stuff, then that doesn't make you look very good. Your career aspirations are lower. Your personal self-esteem is lower. So they have all these tips and tricks in how do you deliver that. And they've got this very interesting technique in Egypt where you wash your clothes, and then in the rinse, you put blue dye, mm. literally blue ink into the water, and it leaves a bluish hue on your clothes. And what happens optically, if you put blue on something yellow, 
actually creates a white illusion, like a snow brilliant like a white illusion. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they did. So part of these innovations for us was trying to learn mm. how do they do this and how you replicate that bluish. So hue. you were seeking out innovations from the customers, from the users, yeah. rather than going to them and saying, "Hey, look, we found a way of improving your washing cycle if, or if, whatever." If, it is. if I would go and and tell them, "Look, this is what I think you should try," right? They would go like, "Oh yeah." Yeah, it's like literally asking people, what do you want? You want to have faster horses? Like, yeah. yeah. But you want to try to give them a car, but they wouldn't be able to imagine what the car is. The difference is if you experience life and you try to identify where are the current pain points, which people quite often are not self-aware of, mm. and you give them a solution that addresses that, the joy you would get is disproportionate. Um, and those are the... the the changes you want to do with real, real innovations. Real innovations address problems you face that you actually didn't know was a potential problem. Uh, so doing that for the longest time gave me good insights on, first of all, where are the opportunities mm. to make interventions on what people are doing today and how can you make life better with small steps or with big steps in a goal? And how do you then try to bring an element of technology in making that happen? Now, doing that for the longest time is in a way frustrating um why because technology in a corporate setting for example if you do it as open innovation people say like wow you have to open innovate and you have to work with startups and you have to go find all these amazing new mm. technologies and you need to get them into into these billion dollar products that process has a very low success rate so if you are an open innovation manager in general and you get to see all the professors, you get to see all the startups, you, you travel the world looking for the best technology, your actual success rate of identifying a solution and getting it into your billion dollar rent is very low. Mm. So from the conversations I would have with startups and professors and institutes and technology owners back in the days, for my personal taste, I too often needed to have the conversation on, you've got a great idea, but you're, you're not ready. I'll come back in three, four years if, if you're still around and th then we'll talk because mm. you need to have XYZ KPIs and your quality and your skill. There was so many different things that as a corporate person I needed to see in that technology before I could even right. influence anybody in the R&D or higher up you, you wanted to completely de-risked so that they could kind of well, like take and that and say, okay, we, we found it, it works, but, but we need to but plug it in. But that's how most corporates run yeah. as an organization. They're not very risky organizations because they've of got course. too many other things that can possibly go wrong. So they wanted to see a full de-risked proposition going into it, preferably as fast as possible, for as little as possible cost yeah. with everything in place. And that's just not startup life. Um, so when I went from P&G to Avery Dennison, for me, that was a step forward because I wanted to create impact. And that was actually the reason why Headhunter got me out of PNG. I wasn't looking to leave. It was, it was a great job. I was having fun. Open innovation was the best job for me. I was, I was literally having fun. I, j I just couldn't get enough impact of getting technology into the brands and influence that process. So with Avery Dennison, they, they internally run more entrepreneurial. So they literally gave me R&D accountability and some extent innovation revenue accountability. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. at least the impact on the organization, how you would structure pipelines, was there was more things that we could affect. Um, we could shop around for technologies to implement the new, fast, innovative product portfolios more often than I had in my past life, so it was a good journey. But still, it's a corporate structure, KPIs are still there, and there's still a level of risk averseness in, in certain categories. So whenever I left um, Avery Dennison, and I had to answer my question, like, first of all, I was in Hong Kong, where do I go? I came back to Singapore, mm. this is where I felt most like, like home, so I came back here. Um, I wanted to do a sabbatical um, to then decide, well, where am I going to go next? Because at that point in time, I was still assuming I was going to go for another big corporate, right. similar kind of type job, open innovation, global programs, not sure where to go, what to do, which one to join. Um, and then I, I literally started mentoring startups here just to keep myself busy in that process of reflection. Um, and I enjoyed that process a lot because what I continue to see is that by simply sitting with the startup as an individual, but not an individual with a corporate agenda, gave me the opportunity to make real impact for them. And where in corporate life, I was having that conversation for a particular outcome. It's like, I want to make sure if I can evaluate your technology to adopt it, it switched into a conversation about how can I just help you? 
how can I use my experience, my mm. past exposure, and the understanding of what mature products are looking for and what you need to grow into? How do we turn this into a conversation where I'll just help you make progress? Right. One uh, step how, how did that change the outcome when you started asking that question differently? Mm. It, it, a lot of things happened by accident, right? Because when I first started the mentoring, I was, I was still telling people, me, entrepreneur, over my dead body. It's, it's not me. It's not going to happen. And I think that was still the, the dark shadow of corporate comfort yeah. over me. I, I, I didn't know how to get my own salary, um, how to provide. That, that just wasn't there. And my comfort level of I can do this was, was, was not there. Um, but then I got incentivized by starting uh, my first startup with a, a couple of Israeli entrepreneurs. Um, the journey was was very interesting. They were very confident that we're going to get investment and this and that. And that kind of, in a way, tricked me into becoming an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, but, but I loved it. I really loved how to go from an IP asset, write the business plan around it, do some early prototyping, go investor discussions. Like that was a, a life I never had before, right? Yes, I had internal budget meetings and proposals for funding, but investor meetings, that was like a whole brand new thing. Um, but getting there, enjoying it, and actually participating in, in good discussions, for me was that first part that needed to be true is, can I be an entrepreneur? Um, that initial startup failed for a couple of obvious red flags, um, but for me to get it from an IP asset into a business plan, into good productive um, investor meetings and potentially moving forward, for me that was proof of principle for my personal entrepreneur journey. Um, then I got the chance for a second startup, um, which was an IP asset coming out of NTU on a water remediation technology. And, and this is now a, um, a seed stage startup. It's EcoWorth Tech. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of those um, clean tech, um, homegrown companies that are continuously to make ripples in the uh, environmental industry. Um, and it literally started with reading a patent and building the teams around it. Um, and that's where I realized like, I like this journey of taking very early stage tech, building the companies around it, I, I wanna do more of this. Mm. So budding innovations was actually the answer to the question, how do we get more technologies into the market? How do we qualify, scale, validate, and get things out so that people can adopt it? Um, and how do I build a platform and an ecosystem that enables more entrepreneurs to benefit from integrated skills, experience, and knowledge to get their own technologies from whatever stage they are out into the market. Mm. So that was the founding principle for BI is get people's technologies out and use my, my teams, my ecosystems experience um, in making that happen. Okay. I really wanted to make an impact for any entrepreneur that had something, but like me at the beginning was a little bit inexperienced, but just provide for them and help them going out. So put, put the resources and the relationships aside, Ideologically, how does an entrepreneur like you and your platform and your ecosystem differ from a large corporate? Not picking on Procter and Gamble, it could be a Unilever, it could be any P, you know, like CPG company or food and beverage or anybody innovating an Intel or an IBM. Ideologically, how is it different in the way you do it? Hmm. I think in a way we're open to experiment. I think we're open to go where the technology takes us. I think we're not necessarily driven by the pre-designed output to put your peg in a certain type of a hole. Um, corporates tend to look at innovation in the wider scheme of things because they need to deliver a certain pre-communicated financial target. Right. And they are fitting to innovate within a particular um, segment of the market and there are so many blueprinted requirements of that innovation already so the ideological difference for an entrepreneur is literally you're innovating to make the world a better place because you don't necessarily have a pre-blueprinted um, context of what you're innovating mm. into so as an entrepreneur you really have the opportunity to create what will be future world-changing game-changing opportunities any type of innovation? Does it have to be product or is it anything? Does it have to be related to your experience at Procter & Gamble or Avery Dennison? Would you take technology? Would you take service? Um, obviously, I need to have, or as a team, we need to have some understanding of, mm. of what we're doing. Um, 
And, and the BI model has, over the three years we've been around, become more multi-layered than it was at the very beginning. At the very beginning, it was around products, products we could touch. Um, we weren't doing any digital stuff. We weren't doing any, any services. And it was looking at individual product opportunities. Mm. And we said, to some extent, innovation talents are industry agnostic. Right? I've, I've worked across so many different businesses that yes, you can put me on a materials business, you can put me on a diagnostic business, you can put me on any business and I'll figure out how I use my innovation industry agnostic skills to make an impact and a difference for that particular topic. Right. I'll, I'll study up and I'll, I'll, I'll make something happen. But back in the early days, we were looking at discrete individual technology innovations and progressing with them. What has happened over time is we see that there is a lot of innovation that requires multiple Lego bricks to come together. So we, we started to see that health in general was innovating and picking up speed faster than, for example, advanced materials or green tech or agri-tech. We said, okay, why don't we focus for a little bit more on where can we go with, with life, with life tech and lifespan health, the way we call it now. And what we realized is if you want to live longer, more happily, more healthily, this is not about one experience that needs to be true. These are multiple touch points that need to be mm. addressed. So, for example, active lifestyles and living healthily. There's a component of nutrition. You need to eat healthily. If you live a stressed life, you can't just eat yourself healthy. You need to work on supplements. But to know what supplements you in your particular context need. And as an Ironman athlete, you put a lot of stress on your body and you work long days. So what does right nutrition look like for you as an individual in context, in real time? Well, that's where diagnostics and wearables come into play. Mm. But if you then want to make sure that I notice your personal preference for certain, for example, food groups, or depending on what time of day you want to work out, or anything that makes up your personal psyche, how that influences the choices you make on technology and nutrition and food, well, there needs to be a connection between that. So what we started to learn is that in making real lifespan health interventions, we need to become really good at a systemic approach. So that's why now in BI, when we talk about life tech, this is about nutrition, food development, behavioral analysis, psychological effects, mm. both the hard problems, but also the services, also the digital platform for the individual startups and technologies. But also this is where now blockchain and AI and machine learning comes into play because we have to start connecting a wearable with a nutritional output. I need to be able to link your biomarkers and how your body responds to its environment with how do I now make a recommendation for what might give you a better mm. health and life projection, but that matches with your preference because I'm not going to be able to address a lifestyle change if it's something you just hate to do. So, and all of these different things require systemic innovation. Uh, and this is where our model now has evolved into, where we say like, yes, we'll work with individual entrepreneurs in getting their technology to move ahead, but we're also trying to curate potential future intersection points with other tech, mm. for example, a nutraceutical company with a biomarker opportunity and a behavioral analysis for a runner app, where all of that in the end is gonna come together on a common platform at some point in the future. So as a venture building firm, more and more, we're trying to do a projective due diligence where we're not just looking at, can this technology and can this startup be successful on their own? Mm. That's almost like the, the price of entry. If, if you can be successful on your own, then don't even go there. If you can't swim, well, you can't start an Ironman. If you can't change your bike tire, well, you can't fix on your own your, your puncture because you simply cannot accept outside help. So as a standalone startup, you need to know what you're doing. But if I can then put you in context in a few surrounding adjacency technologies to make you more successful, then that's where we'll try to make uh, a difference in curating that ecosystem. Okay, so let's say I have an innovation. Let's say it's a wearable. It may not be at product stage or prototype stage. Is there a sweet spot where you find that you can add the most value with a certain type of startup or even, you know, are they pre, you know, pre prototype, pre MVP post? Do they have, you know, can you just advise me in the sense that I have this idea or I have a product at what stage would I best be able to work mm -hmm. with you? The first thing and the most important thing for us to work with you is we kind of need to like you right? yeah. because we're going to spend a lot of time together. If you're a bit 
of a not so likable person, then well, you're also not going to get married to a person yeah. that you just don't want to spend the rest of your life with. Um, and that's why we're we're a venture builder that takes things very seriously. Um, we really put skin in the game. We will really work with the people. We're not the quick in and out. Let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Let mentor you for a weekend, maybe even like 90 days for that matter, and then we're out. And even if I step out, I don't lose anything. That, that's not how we work. We literally get in, we embed ourselves with the individual. We try to take care of his baby as he would take care of his own baby. And, and that's where it starts. If, if we have a good interpersonal relationship, that is starting point number one. Starting point number two is um, the technology readiness level for us doesn't necessarily matter. We work with professors who literally had early stage experiments mm. in the lab and we try to get them to, to MVP or proof of principle. Um, you can come on board and you say, we already have a startup, but I don't have a co-founder. I, I need to get a team. Um, or I don't have any funding. need to help with, with grants and proposals. So for us, it's not that important what is the stage you're at. It's more important on how committed are you to the cause, um, how open are you to accept help, and to be open to make changes if necessary. And we'd look at, well, does this technology have legs in the first place? And if it doesn't, the best help I can sometimes give you is to say to stop. Right? Mm. This is a technology that's just not going to work. It's not competitive. It's too costly. You can't scale it. Y y you can't put elephants on surfboards and, and try to expect them to float. So, And sometimes that's also what helps looks like to steer people away from what's an obvious disaster happening. Mm. Um, but we're literally, at the moment in our current portfolio, um, we're literally starting with lab stage principal investigators that are coming out of the, the A-Star ecosystem. We're also working with young entrepreneurs that had a homemade proof of principle prototype and we'll take them forward. And we've got established startups that um, that just need additional skills in, in scaling up. Mm. Most recently, we've put additional partnerships in place and we'll, we'll officially be announcing it um, by the middle of September. Um, but we're working with private equity firms and people that specialize in late stage investments and, and business curating, which is now becoming an ecosystem where we can mm. start as early as I had an idea and I need help all the way down to exit planning and exit delivering, whether it's an IPO or a merger and acquisition, whatever that is. So we're literally trying to build that ecosystem from not cradle to grave, because graves are quite bad for startups, but we're literally going to go from cradle to unicorn right. and really try to put an entire suite of, um, of support in place. And how would a venture builder work? Because you've mentioned, for example, you've alluded to an accelerator where you know the 90 days, three months, We've seen them come and go as well, accelerators with varying degree of success. Where I'd go in, they would take um, a stake of equity and they would give me you know, a, a small amount of money, 25, 50,000 maybe, mm -hmm. and they would incubate that startup for three months. They'd do the demo day and it's like, see you later, right? Okay, into the wild and exactly. often never see them again. And that's the challenge because the accelerator sometimes is not there to create startups, but for PR in certain instances for mm -hmm. large corporates, right? How, how does a venture builder differ? What's the model? How do you make money? Do you take equity stakes? Do you charge fees? Well, to the first point, uh, I've gotten the question so many times. What are you? Mm. Are you an incubator or you're an accelerator? And I found it hard to explain to people what we're not. So I always use the example as follows. Imagine your, your, your kid, your son or your daughter. An accelerator or an incubator it's like a nanny. They come on board in your life and they take care of you for a certain period of time, yeah. for a certain objective. Right? An incubator sits earlier in life than an accelerator. An incubator takes care of early childhood days when you need support, when you need to get your basic skills and wipe your mouth and change your diapers and those kind of things. An accelerator is when you're going to high school, but you need much more... Um, classes and support and mm. extra trainings and these are your, your camps, whatever have you, so to make you run faster. Both are absolutely necessary. Both skills are absolutely critical to get people through life. What BI is, we're your mom. We're there from the beginning and we're there until you decide to say goodbye and, and, mm. and venture out. We're not going to let go. And we're literally going to be taking care of you no matter what, whatever hardship you're going to go through, the good and the bad, we'll be there to support. And we'll work with everybody else that needs to come together, be in an incubator, be in an accelerator to 
but we're going to be that that red threat throughout the entire lifespan of that particular startup. Mm. Um, and that that's where we're different. We're we're closer to the mom than we are to the nanny. Right. Interesting analogy. I get it. That's the long term commitment. So where's the money in it for you? Are you taking equity stakes in these startups? Mm. Is it fees? We, we've we've got a fairly diverse business model because mm. the, the things to realize is our bills in the early days of BI were paid by the innovation work that we were doing with the big corporates, the consulting, the strategy development, the mm. innovation prototype delivery, actually getting products out to market, right? That's how we grew BI. BI was not started off the back of a financial investment and where we then were investing in different startups and doing all these kind of typical activities. We literally worked our ass off to get a first paid contract. And with that first paid contract, we made some profit and that hired our second person and we got more projects. So that's how it grew. So startups for us in the early days were literally investment opportunities where with our hard work and our in-kind contributions, we were trying to help them to move forward. So as a reference, again, we had no investments into BI early on, but we invested $300,000 of our own mm. elsewhere made profit into EcoWorth Tech to get it to a stage where it could raise external funding to come in. Um, and that's, that's literally how we grew. Um, so you were actually investing in the startups that were working with you in part yes, of your portfolio. And, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily um, all of it in cash. It's all of it by, for example, deploying the team and the mm. people that do the right. work. We would pay for licensing fees. We would pay for prototyping work. We would cover those costs until the point you get external funding to come in. So where BI originally was making most of our um, revenue was from corporate engagement. Yeah. Um, now the entire plan is a bit diversified. So we have consulting fees. We can work on per hour basis for consulting type engagements. We work on R&D budgets. When you have a milestone based project brief, then we get paid for that and we deliver all the work. For things like startups, we know startups are short for cash upfront. So we try to, again, at the positive outcome with due diligence, and we feel that that startup is actually really great and we want to work with them and bring them in our ecosystem we'll work with them on a non-cash basis. Um, and we put skin in the game by saying like, look, we'll work with you guys until you get to the next or the first or the following mm. funded stage. And then we'll put a reward for us into the budget proposal that would go to the investors. And from that point forward, we'll take the cash component. Right, so the investors would pay you, assuming that you can in, raise, in, help in, them. In, in indirectly, yeah, yes. In a, yeah, um, ideal situation. And then as a compensation for the risk we take up front, is that's where we then see, can we take an equity stake? Um, so literally we've done startups where there was no cash compensation for us as such, but we would then get an equity stake in proportion for the effort we mm. did in the startup. So w when we literally co-found the startup and we would deploy some of our team members as actual co-founders of that business, then we talk co-founding types of percentages. Mm -hmm. If we're doing minor contributions like the startup team is fully there, they just need help in development of a MVP prototype, then we can do that as a cash compensation if they're fully funded, but we can also do it as an equity component representative for whatever is reasonable, and then, then we'll move it forward. Um, and then for businesses that we've literally delivered, so besides cash components on consulting on time basis, on project delivery basis, we can work on retainers where some of the corporates hiring our time on a standing average basis per month so that's a retainer fee um, if we deliver programs and they are commercially viable we're okay to do royalties or profit sharing moving forward and then you've got things like um, equity comp equity components and percentages there so okay fantastic now i'm very conscious of the time because we've been we've been chatting for well nearly 50 minutes now 45 50 minutes oh, there's a couple of things i've got to ask you i mean i've been really deep into this conversation i'm fascinated by it as well and, and like you've been very sort of open and, and you've mapped it out i think in terms of innovation where where the the frustrations are facing not just you know from the corporate side but for the startups as well and the support that they do need I, i'm sure this resonates with people out there they may come from a corporate background like yourself and say look you know i've been in corporate r d for 10 15 20 25 years and what you just said that resonates with me i'm really interested in what you guys are doing so there's those people there's you know people with the tech skills as well and the hustlers that we all need in the startups there may be people out there that want to be part of your team so you know in a startup we're always mm -hmm. recruiting it's constant 
finding talent is the ongoing challenge, Absolutely. right? That's what we're always out there trying to do and story tell. So from your side, what kind of um, people are you looking for? You're looking for specific hard skills or, you know, and or, you know, you're looking for a type of mindset that would fit in with BI? Mm. Just help us out here that, you know. And I think you put your finger on something that's absolutely critical because we've, we've talked about startups and products and technology, but we're actually in a people business because if I can't talk to you, if I can't sense what is a win-win, if I don't have the interpersonal skills to manage the flow of the conversation, the technology in itself is not going to go anywhere. Mm. So when we look for people to come on board, it's always a mix between the heart and the soft skills. You can have the strongest and the deepest technology expert, but that socially doesn't blend in. And, and those people won't necessarily manage front of office, the actual interpersonal skills that well. So BI so far has been always looking for people that have IQ and EQ hmm. and that have an EQ in a business relevant context where they can manage the interpersonal skills in a very complex, multicultural, fast moving, high risk kind of environment where you need to understand the technology, but also the business in context. Um, what we've just launched is a program that we call Nebula. And Nebula is this interstellar constellation where stars are born. And Nebula is a now commercially available uh, talent development program to develop entrepreneurial innovators. That is a reflection of how we train our own internal people. Because we realized when, whenever we hire new BI staffers, it takes about six months to a year to go from the good profile they're at to become excellent at what we do in, in BI. There, there's nobody that just is hired into BI and knows on day two exactly what to mm. do because this is a new type of delivering ecosystem-based impact. Um, so whenever we had our internal program to help people on the job to get better at what they do, to be fully proficient and lead their own internal future organizations, we said like, well, that's a problem corporate are struggling with. This is a problem where mid-career people are struggling with when, when you are leaving the corporate world, like, like I was myself someday. Um, if somebody can help me on how do I become more entrepreneurial, if somebody can support me in teaching the skills on how do I really, really do this, then that's why we made our internal career development and our internal development for people available to the public in a way. Mm. And I'm not a big fan of boot camps. Um, also not a big fan of classroom training. I, I don't learn in the classroom. I, I fall asleep. Um, I need to learn by doing. So Nebula is a program that is built of an apprenticeship program. So yes, we've got content. Yes, we've got modules. Yes, we've got things you can read. But the entire content is based on a full-time immersive apprenticeship program just focused on entrepreneurial innovation. So when you are a current corporate person, and you say like, look, I want to try something different. I want to get new skills. I want to retool my future. Um, and entrepreneurship, if that is something that you may want to consider, then, then obviously there is now an option on the table where joining BI's Nebula program mm. can give you a lower risk um, journey or a transition point into that. We give it up to, to corporates. We can take corporate teams on board where they say like, look, we've got this really great idea and this team that's trying to crack a, a problem that's not a real fit for a corporate way of working, well, they can come to us, right? We'll help them in getting, first of all, the problem through the next stages, but at the same time, we'll retool the team based on an apprenticeship approach to then potentially go back to the corporate and influence the wider themes. If there are people that come and they say like, look, I'm gonna leave corporate life. I had it, enough. And I've been trying to think for the past 10 years on how mm. the idea X that I had um, to to go and take it to market. These people are generally facing, let's go do a boot camp. Uh, let's join one of these 90-day programs. That's all there is out there. Yeah, Those exactly, are the options. Right? Exactly. But you don't change mindsets in 90 days. And even if you're an individual and you want to go for a course and you want to go back to corporate, so you want to go do something different, let me put it this way. If, if I told you, hey, Graham, I, I went to this uh, blockchain boot camp on the weekend, Mm -hmm. I have some ideas. You want to hire me? It's like, wh what's my credibility, right? What's my confidence level in my own skills? Because yes, I've learned something. I'm, I'm aware of something.
But does that give me really the tools to go and make an impact and tell somebody else that actually has experience in the field to do things differently? Chances are, that's not gonna happen. But if I would come to you and I say like, look, Graham, um, for the past year, these are the products I've delivered. Yeah. I've, I've learned new skills. I, I know how to do this because I've, I've done it. Your chances to influence your ecosystem in a corporate organization, in an entrepreneurial environment, your chances to make an impact and influence and stand up for yourself based on what you've done, based on what you've experienced, probably is gonna be much, much better. Much higher, yeah. So that's why we're very big fans of apprenticeship programs. I think people need to real in real life run through the journey. And that's why Nebula was, was set up as a full-time apprenticeship program. Okay, very interesting. I'm very conscious of the time. We're running out. But it's been a real privilege. And I'm thankful that actually we got to sit down and learn a bit about your story as well. Because I know, and I'm, I'm just so, so passionate about this stuff. I can I know, talk about we this can go on. I mean, I, we've, we only just tapped into your pitch deck on one slide as well. But we'll put all those details up there if people want to have a look at the pitch deck as well and reach out to you. What would be the most effective way? What's the most effective tool or channel for people to make contact with you? What do you prefer? A conversation. Yeah, and how yeah. do I get a conversation with you? LinkedIn or Start WhatsApp LinkedIn or, or just drop us a note from a website portal. Yeah. Um, on social media, you can find me. I've got my handles on, on Instagram where you can see all my sport. I'll be on Facebook, on LinkedIn. That's more the professional side of things. Just, just reach out. Because um, pitch decks for us, they, they continue to change. Yeah. You probably get the sense from this conversation, the essence of BI we just cannot capture in a few slides. And we're actually changing the slides as we speak. The website is going to change. There's a couple of really exciting things coming up. So, But that is innovation, right? That is innovation. You, have to, is. you, have, to, you have to roll with the punches and go, go with the flow. So um, through website, through whatever social right. media, phone call, just reach out. We'll have a chat. All the details in the show notes. Bert Grover and everybody, CEO, co-founder of Budding Innovations. Thank you so much for coming today. And um, keep us updated on all the latest developments. As you said, it, it's constant evolution and innovation. So I'm sure six to 12 months, things have evolved. We'd like to get an update. So, right. But thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And we're neighbors, so we'll talk. Excellent.